Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, let's talk about oil, uh, the oil industry. Interesting uh, article in the Huffington Post said uh, that Shell promotes ambitious climate agenda while backing uh, the Canadian oil lobby. To talk more about all of this, joining us now is Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, Canadians for Affordable Energy. He is with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. Despite uh, these interesting times. Thanks, Scott. So, you know, we just, we talk about mixed messaging during a pandemic. You talk about mixed mex- messaging within this industry, depending on which side you talk to. Uh, what is your thoughts on this headline that's in the Huffington Post? Shell promotes ambitious climate agenda while backing Canadian oil lobby. Where is this industry in Canada? <laughs> well, it's very hard for them to survive in an environment where uh, the uh, the opposition is, is uh, very well uh, trained, uh, very well financed, and has been successful in pretty much shutting down uh, and uh, providing perhaps undue scrutiny on the good work that's being done by companies like Shell, uh, like Suncor, uh, and uh, many others that are uh, not in, only in the extraction of oil, but also in the processing and delivery of that product, a product which uh, the world is going to continue to use at least for the next 30 to 40 years at ever-increasing levels. But they are facing well-financed, well-organized um, institutional investors who, uh, you know, are looking to uh, create some real difficulty for them. And by that, I mean, uh, would like to see their industry disappear without taking into account the consequences of doing that globally. It's impossible. Uh, and what we do here in terms of uh, Royal Dutch Shell in Canada um, can't be, uh, you know, lost on what is happening in other parts of the world where no such uh, requirements are being made of oil producers uh, and uh, natural gas producers. So companies uh, are playing the game they have to play, which is to be all things to all people, uh, you know, avoid the confrontation uh, and uh, try to manage as best as they can until I think reality begins to, uh, to set in, Scott, that uh, this attack uh, on oil, which has gone in Canada, for instance, from being a miracle to a menace, uh, is something that I think that... Uh, uh, many are waiting to have happen. And I think sooner rather than later, certainly with this pandemic, it's not an opportunity to double down on killing an industry that represents 10 to 20% of our economy. It's an opportunity to represent to people and to make very clear that in order to get out of this problem that we've found ourselves in with governments borrowing you know, record amounts, uh, you're going to have to have a very viable ability to grow your economy based on strong uh, economic indicators. That means Without the oil industry, this country is in very, very big trouble. And, of course, uh, I think deep down, the Shells, the Petrocans, the Suncors, the Imperials, all these folks know this. They just don't want to get in a bun fight uh, with uh, with activists. And I think because activists tend to get uh, the voice in the ears of uh, uh, some of our main uh, uh, opinion leaders, not just media, but uh, many others. So what is Shell's position on this? Are they riding the fence? Is that how you would characterize well, it? No, they're not just the only ones, but they are very much like uh, BP. They're very much uh, like uh, Total uh, in Europe. These are companies that are having to ride two horses at the same time. You have, uh, you know, uh, 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 a generation of people who have been trained to uh, disdain uh, hydrocarbons, uh, a generation that uh, isn't allowed to critically think in our schools, that there are uh, very significant, viable reasons why we have an economy based on hydrocarbons. Most importantly, and this is significant, uh, you have uh, you know uh, a number of people who basically trivialize the significance of hydrocarbons. And as I like to say from time to time, you can't build a Tesla 
without uh, pavement on the road, without tires made by oil, without polymers, paints, uh, and the entire extraction process to get the battery without fossil fuels. So I think they're trying to provide some kind of reconciliation. It looks really bad uh, that they, some, for some people, purists are caving, but, you know, this is an industry that has gone eons uh, from where it was 20, 30 years ago in terms of reducing emissions and, and curbing pollution. We're not giving them credit for it, and I think that's the danger. Uh, you know, if, if Canada doesn't want to produce oil, it doesn't want to produce natural gas, we're still going to need it. And the question is, do we want someone else to do it? What happens in that, and, you know, we, we've talked to experts, we've talked about this many times on the show, and, you know, it's hard to find an expert that says it's not. this isn't going to take between 20 and 50 years to, to as a transition period. What happens between now and that 20-year period, though? Well, I think a lot of uh, recognition of, uh, and I don't think we have to wait 20 years. I think the next 20 months is going to demonstrate the extent to which not having this industry doing as well as it has, having been hobbled, by a government that's brought in C48, C50, uh, C4, C69, meant to stop oil from being delivered. It's no future pipelines being built in this country. I think the bitter harvest will be investors leaving. Uh, I mentioned uh, with you last week the effect of the clean fuel standard, uh, potential loss of some uh, 30,000 jobs, capital leaving the country at some $22 billion. I think Canadians are going to finally realize that uh, you, know, you, you, you tempt the goat you're likely to get the horn. And that's likely what's going to happen here is that over the next several months, the country's going to realize it can't pay back its debts. And because it can't pay back its debts and can't continue printing money, uh, you're going to have to back your winners, whether you like it or not. It might also provide an opportunity, a unique opportunity for Keynes to really you know, clue in, uh, so, you know, literally uh, <laughs> smell the coffee. This is an industry that isn't just important for your social programs and your teachers' pensions or whoever's pensions and maintaining our social programs. This is an industry that clean, it provides clean energy the way no other industry uh, compares to, as far as oil is concerned, around the world. We're number one. Uh, not that that's going to be taught in our schools. Not that you're going to hear that on a lot of uh, national news headlines. Uh, you're instead going to be given more regurgitation over you know, the climate and uh, the world coming to an end in 10 years. I think people are going to get a reality that it's how they're going to make ends meet in the next 10 months. It's going to be a lot more important than worrying about what happens in 20 or 30 years. So uh, obviously we're seeing consumption uh, down to record lows because of the pandemic and yep. things uh, that have shut down. Is it a matter, you know, I mean, six months from now, there's say there's a vaccine. How, how does that change everything? Well, it changes in the sense that we'll finally be able to get back to some form of normality as it looked a little bit before the pandemic. The difference is that we're left with a massive headache, not just a financial one, but there has been a lot of changes. A lot of companies did not survive this. Demand may not be there. People may be out of work who lost jobs during this period may not be getting that call to come back. So we have to sort of manage how to best cobble back what we need. We need the world will need to continue to need food. It will need continue to need transportation. Our aviation industry doesn't fly on batteries and, uh, and solar chips and uh, solar panels. It flies. On yeah, think about that fuel. right there, Dan. Sorry to interrupt, but think about that right there. Yeah. As soon as the airline industry comes back, what that will do to fuel prices? Uh, it'll drive it up, obviously. And yeah. Not only that, we'll have uh, you know uh, dramatically so because a lot of players have left have left the building. So, you know, a lot of producers, oil producers, especially in the United States, and everyone says, oh, Canada's the big problem. A lot of them have left. No, American frackers have gone. Uh, processors may not be so willing to, you know, ramp up more oil and, and process more fuel for aviation, for 
whatever the product may be, because they're afraid of getting burnt. What if we go through a third round of COVID or fourth round or fifth round? Or what is this the new reality? So a lot of people are going to be very, very cautious about doing resuming the way it used to be uh, prior to. And we, we, you know, everyone hopes that things get back to normal as quickly as possible. But uh, there are challenges that are well beyond our ability to predict these things. And of course, if anybody could have predicted a, we'd be in the situation we're in just a year ago, um, there's a lot of uh, slip between the cup and the lip, as they say. Uh, what about the significance of uh, ExxonMobil off the Dow Jones? Yeah, well, the, the industry has seen a lot of other blue chip companies leave. Uh, Pfizer, good example, one of the leaders in, uh, in, in pharmaceuticals. I don't think it really says a whole lot. The index is pretty rigid. It has to have to have a certain market cap. Uh, it doesn't mean you're not trading. It doesn't mean that the company's not doing well. Uh, it just means that, of course, these are unusual times. You know, back in April, Scott, you and I talked about uh, the fact that oil is trading for $37 a barrel negative. And there was a reason for that. That was, of course, to ensure that uh, American storage facilities would really open up because you're paying them to basically store in not just the amount, but you were basically saying, hey, we'll give you more money if you find storage, storage space. Within one week of that April 15th occurrence, we never heard about storage issues ever again. You know, the world was, you know, was, we were busting at the seams. We were uh, going over at the brim. All of that's gone. And so uh, the market will adjust, and it will adjust in time. And, of course, price is the best incentive. That's how real markets function. The danger is governments getting involved, as this federal government has done, in trying to regulate, manipulate, or try to somehow denigrate uh, the, the free market by going after woke ideas that uh, don't work, especially for Canada, a cold country that is very energy intensive and it is very much uh, been benefit benefited by clean energy being produced in Canada for eons. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Is it too late in the sense that the mood has changed and whether right or wrong or you can't see the forest for the tea, uh, the trees or, or, you know, the gas pumps for the refineries, whatever. Uh, is it too late in the sense that public opinion is that this is just bad? There's nothing good about it. Uh, is it Ontario's yeah. best interest to look the uh, other way? There's this little town called Sarnia, Ontario. I just saw a $2 billion upgrade to its petrochemical sector. Uh, there's a textile industry. There's, a, there's a, a steel industry. All of these industries run, to a great extent, on the health, viability, and prices within the, uh, within the fossil fuel industry, carbon industry. Our farming community can't survive without it. So if someone wants to wave a magic wand and suddenly says, I utopia it's right here right now let's spend 55 billion dollars of borrowed money that we don't have by all means do so but i know most people i'm listening or they're listening to us right now uh who are in a house cannot afford a 10 to 15 percent increase in interest rates so let's just start there uh, reality is going to grip the uh the, the ones who are really purveying fantasy and wonderland about uh, how green revolution is going to do this or that at the end of the day you, you work with what's worked in the past and you, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's get back to where we were prior to the pandemic. Let's get our leaders that got us out of previous recessions, the 1981, the 1995, and of course the 2008 downturns. It took the oil industry, it took the natural gas industry and the competitive manufacturing prices based on cheap, abundant, clean energy to get us back on our feet. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's let them do their job and uh, let's stop trying to interfere with all sorts of woke ideas that we know doesn't work for Germany, doesn't work for Britain, certainly didn't work for California a couple of weeks ago in the fires. 
let's get back to reality of uh, building this country and building it back the way it should be. Rather, uh, let's call it a responsible recovery, uh, not a ridiculous recovery. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's w- w- many have talked about how we're in this world that we're in right now. And once, and everybody at the beginning of this, uh, the pandemic talked about getting back to normal. Now we all realize when normal does come back, whatever that is, it will not be the same, uh, because you cannot suspend the world or the economy for six months, eight months, a year, whatever, yeah. by the time it's all over and have things come out the other end exactly in place. That being said, here we are right now. The whole world is sort of sitting in suspended animation, on hold, circling around the airport because there is no vaccination. So everything is on a, a reduced rate of productivity in some way. Are, are, are environmentalists thinking this is the new norm? And once a vaccination kicks in, that all of this won't go back the way it was and people will start getting out and buying and driving and flying and doing the things maybe obviously in a reduced amount and certainly differently. But as soon as that vaccination is available, this whole discussion changes, does it not? Well, I think it would change. Uh, and we become more, uh, I guess we become a little bit more attuned to the prospect of yet another type of virus that, uh, that appears. Uh, you know, in my old days when I worked in public relations for Toyota Canada and we'd visit Japan on the occasion, uh, it was interesting that people there, uh, as we saw in many parts of the world that are susceptible to these kind of viruses and flus, would as practice always wear a mask. So, you know, <laughs> I think if anything, we've learned a lot. Uh, we've also, by the way, and ironically learned that, uh, uh, you know, PPEs, this, the equipment that we're using based on plastics, is extremely important in terms of combating and maintaining a healthy population. So you have the federal liberal government saying we're going to render this stuff toxic and de- declare it, uh, you know, a menace. Y- you really got to wonder uh, if, in fact, your federal liberal government has learned anything from this. My hope is that they understand that not only did they, were they backing the wrong crisis, that is to say we had a climate crisis when, in fact, the pandemic was far more pernicious and will continue to be. Perhaps it's time that uh, before we worry about how we've changed society and the economy, we start changing the attitudes of some of the dummies in Ottawa who are completely inflexible to the reality that has, be, 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 uh, that has uh, befallen them uh, over the past uh, 11 months or so. Uh, obviously, we're learning more about uh, the new Conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole. Your thoughts on what he has covered in this? Uh, any different? Well, he's certainly uh, not a guy with a lot of baggage. Um, maybe I'm biased. He's from the same area that I represent, Durham Region. Um it's kind of nice and refreshing to get a Toronto GTA uh, representative uh, speaking uh, at the national level. Um, Durham's always had sort of this impossibility of never, at least on the Liberal side, having a full cabinet minister, uh, unlike the Conservatives have done very well in that area. Um, O'Toole himself, I think, is uh, an interesting fellow. He's, uh, uh, for a lot of people, because he's, he's not well known, uh, the possibilities and the potential is great. They know a lot about Trudeau, and they, they like or dislike. Uh, I happen to be in the camp that is definitely on the dislike side for obvious reasons. I think he's incompetent, and I think he's also uh, led uh, and disgraced that office of prime minister with not one, but two, now three potential you know uh, violations. That aside, I think with O'Toole, he has a great opportunity here. Uh, the fact that he dodged a bullet last week, uh, in other words, there won't be an election called just weeks after he became leader, um, is giving him enough time so that people can start to say that there are alternatives. And I think for the Conservatives, 
much as I am not a conservative, uh, much that I don't know much about the internal workings of the party, they begin with a very strong base uh, and a base that uh, says, you know, in terms of popular vote, they were bigger than the Liberals last election and in terms of uh, their regional representation. If they break through in the 905s, and, uh, you know, that's why I think it's significant that uh, O'Toole is there. He is a 905 MP. It's game over for the Liberals. And more importantly, <laughs> I still have a lot of friends and contacts. You get that after 38 years of being in that party. They're scared, and they, and they have good reason to be. Interesting. Your thoughts on uh, the information that uh, came out last week in regard to uh, Oakville Ford and the announcement that they would be, uh, after the current production uh, schedule ends, which I believe is 2023, I might be wrong there, um, that they're moving to uh, producing up to five EVs, electric vehicles there. Your thoughts on Oakville Ford turning into an EV plant? Well, my bias, my father-in-law worked there for 30, 35 years. Uh, I live in Oakville. Um, so, you know, I think it'd be great for jobs there. But I also think that uh, I have to consider uh, GM shut down in, in Oshawa, even though the same, uh, you know, the same kind of uh, offering was made by the, by, uh, by the government to uh, provide any support that they could to make that transition. Uh, it's very risky. Um, but if you're going to offer somebody, you know, half a billion bucks of borrowed money and uh, match that with the province, I, I'm not, uh, I haven't followed what the province is prepared to do. I have no qualms with electric vehicles or with hydrogen vehicles, which I think, by the way, Scott, I, I, my, my uh, spidey sense says, expect the federal liberals to be talking a big game in the next few days into the, the remainder of this month about hydrogen. Uh, obviously something that you cannot use and is not possible to produce uh, with all the risks and the cost and the technology uh, without natural gas. So there's a bit of an irony, but uh, I digress. I think in the case of electric, I think it's a wonderful idea. Uh, I just wish that electric vehicles uh, could be produced, understood, adapted, uh, have the range, the ability to replicate what, uh, what, the, uh, what fossil fuel industries or uh, cars are doing or uh, internal uh, combustion engines do, uh, but at the same time be sold without subsidies. In other words, stop asking people on fixed incomes to subsidize fat cats driving around with it. And I see a lot of them here in Oakville with their, their Teslas. Wonderful thin, little thing to be pushing around and say, I'm driving this thing as a sort of a vanity type of thing, but I shouldn't be paying for it, nor should you, nor should your listeners. Uh, what about the fact that they're looking to to create more of uh, the batteries and the material here uh, instead of farming oh, yeah. that out and, and bringing it in, back in as a product, but actually, you know, covering all aspects of the vehicle here? Sure. Cobalt, graphene, all those products uh, could be made here. The question is, is the climate, uh, investment climate right? And uh, you've got a government that uh, basically has taken a position that emissions are more important than the actual product. So here, of course, the government has itself caught in a bit of a, in a bit of a bind because it's saying if you produce emissions, we're going to tax the living crap out of you, and you better get your emissions down. Why would I, as a company, want to do it in Canada when I can do it in Mexico? I can do it in China. I can do it in the United States. I can do it in Latin America. I can do it in South America. I can go anywhere around the world, and I'm not faced with these kind of uh, strict, prohibitive, costly regulations that, at the end of the day, make it uh, less viable. So I think, you know, we're going to have to hear from Premier Ford uh, if we want to uh, see that uh, our mineral industry, our resource industry, our extraction industry here in Ontario uh, can perform so well under such arduous uh, circumstances. Maybe time for a little bit of pushback from Ontario to say, Ottawa, uh, this clean fuel standard, among other regulations that you're imposing, uh, runs directly contrary to the objective you're trying to uh, you're trying to accomplish. So in those industries there, I'd say they should be able to get a pass if that's your objective. Other than that, 
you're simply uh, you're, you're you're kidding yourself. No one's going to invest in Ontario when they can do the same investments elsewhere at far less cost because they are not faced with the same woke environmental regulations. When this announcement was made, it was all about the batteries and extracting the minerals and making them and manufacturing them and and everything done here. Is the extraction of the minerals and what is needed to produce these batteries better for the environment than the extraction of fossil fuel? Well, you can't do one without the other. How are you going to get the extraction process? Look, uh, the Manhattan uh, Research Group put out a very interesting report about a month and a half ago, well-known. For every uh, EV battery out there, you have to extract 5,000 tons of earth. Uh, and to get the kind of minerals that we're looking at, which can't all of these be, be produced here in Canada, uh, you're looking at countries with very shady human rights and labor records. Um, so I think when you start to really drill down and realize that uh, you know, a lot of these things are wonderful, uh, we like to think of them as novel and trendy in the way of the future, but none of them, not a single uh, mineral can be extracted with a fossil fuel. So uh, as I like to remind my friends driving their Teslas, they look great with the battery. That 1,500 pounds is uh, very inefficient. And even if it were to be efficient, there isn't a single thing about that car that doesn't have a massive car- carbon footprint from the time it's extracted from the ground to the time in which it rolls off the road on that asphalt or cement pavement uh, road. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP, Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Always good to be with you. Thanks again, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.